We are uh, continuing our way through the book of Revelation, and uh, I want to invite you uh, to give your attention to the reading of God's Word. A reading from Revelation chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray together. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray that you would fill this place with your presence and that you would tend to the preaching of your word. Lord, no one here needs to hear from me. We need to hear from you. And so we pray that you would work uh, around me, against me, through me, whatever, whatever it takes uh, that we might hear your word, that it might land in our hearts, that it w- might change us and renew us and enable us to endure. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are on week seven in our series on the book of Revelation. And we are now coming to the sixth message of seven that Jesus sent to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And uh, if you haven't been here, um, or if you've forgotten everything that's been said, I'm not actually going to summarize. You can go check the tape. But uh, what I want to note this morning is the tone changes in this message that Jesus gives to the church in Philadelphia. There is no rebuke in this message. There is no call to repentance. There is no word of correction. It sounds and feels different than some of the other messages that we've been taking a look at. Now, this doesn't mean that the church in Philadelphia was perfect. By no means. No church is. But Jesus knew that what they most needed at the moment was some encouragement. They needed a word of comfort. And the truth is, Jesus, he he always knows what we most need. And we've been pointing out how in each of the messages that Jesus gives to these churches, he describes himself in images that Christians in that city needed to see and hear. That they needed to see and hear these things about him so that they could endure. And we see that here again in the beginning of our passage. And I want to spend a a few moments talking about that. Jesus says, these are the words of the Holy One, the True One. Holy and true is how he describes himself. Now, if, if you don't get it, that's an audacious claim. Because this is how Yahweh described himself in the Old Testament. And you can see that all throughout the book of Isaiah. So what Jesus is doing 
is he's identifying himself, he's IDing himself as the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. And by the way, honoring Jesus as holy and true was exactly what got these Christians in Philadelphia in trouble with the synagogue. They said, that's blasphemous. Only God is entirely holy and true. So Jesus is saying, I got you. I got you. You are right to honor me this way. I am the sovereign Lord. I am the holy and the true. And then here's another one. Jesus says, I'm the one who has the key of David. Who opens and no one will shut. Who shuts and none shall open. What in the world is this talking about? Well, these words are actually also taken from the book of Isaiah. Chapter 22. Verse 20 and 22. There's this scene where God is cleaning house in the house of David. And he puts the key of the house of David on the shoulder of a man named Eliakim. And this is what it says at the, at the end of that little part. It says, he shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. You see, the house of David was supposed to be a symbol of the kingdom of God. And the key of the house of David was the authority to admit or exclude. And so what Jesus is doing is drawing that story into himself. And he's saying, I have the key. Ultimately, I'm the one who has the key to open the door to God's presence. And you know, this would have been incredibly good news to those who had had the doors of the synagogue shut in their face. By his death and his resurrection from the dead, Jesus has opened the door of salvation to all who believe. Which means, Jesus has the power to open doors for those who've been shut out. That he can welcome into his presence those whom others have excluded. That's just in the beginning. But not only does Jesus unveil things about himself in each of the churches that they needed to see. The promises he makes are always tailor-made to hook the hearts of the listeners. The promises to make these Philadelphian Christians pillars in the temple of God. This is at the end of the passage. That they'll never have to go out again. That they will be given a new name. All of these, as we will see, connect in profound ways to some circumstances that those Christians were experiencing in that city. What we're witnessing here and what we're witnessing in every one of these messages is the genius of Jesus. He always knows what we need. And he knows how to speak right to our hearts. Now, it's important to recognize that the church in Philadelphia, and by the way, I forgot to say this in the first, first service. We're not talking about Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Okay, just in case, this is Philadelphia, Asia Minor in the first century. But it's important to recognize that this church in Philadelphia was under tremendous pressure. They were experiencing intense opposition and they were suffering. And you may know something about that. In your own life. Maybe you're in the midst of that right now. And what Jesus is doing for them. Is he's giving them truth. That when taken to heart. Will enable them to endure. And it's what we need too. Because I don't know about you. But have you ever just done that gut check. And asked yourself. How am I dealing with my suffering? How am I handling the trouble. That has come into my life? Am I crumbling under its weight? Or do I know how to endure Jesus is giving us things we need to know in order that we might endure. Now, we've touched on the beginning and the end of this passage. 
And this passage is, is a little tricky. So what I want to do is I want to focus in first on a big point that is taken from the middle of the passage. And then we're going to work our way backwards. And then we're going to put it in reverse and actually go forward again to the end. So that's how we're going to approach this. So let's start first with this observation that we're going to get from the middle of this message. And that observation is this. Suffering can turn you into something great or it can turn you into something terrible. Suffering can turn you into something great or it can turn you into something terrible. That's not an original thought to me. In fact, I think it's something that everybody knows. Think about it. On the one hand, suffering can make you a humbler and more compassionate person. And you've probably experienced this in your life. Or you've witnessed that happening in someone's life who's suffered immensely. But on the other hand, suffering can also make you hard and bitter. And you know stories like that as well. And maybe you've experienced that in your own life. But here's the thing. Suffering will never leave you the same. And you don't have to be a Christian to recognize this. The question becomes... What makes the difference? What makes the difference between suffering turning you into something great or turning you into something terrible? And I want you to think about it this way by asking another question. What does everyone want when they're going through suffering? Think about your answer to that question. What does everyone want? Well, actually, I'll tell you what everyone wants. We want to get out. That's what we want. And there is no shame in that. That is totally legit because suffering is not fun. You want to get out. But sometimes you can't. And you have to walk through it. And how you walk through it makes all the difference between whether it will turn you into something great or turn you into something terrible. How were these Christians in Philadelphia walking through their suffering? Well, right in the middle of this message, Jesus says to this community, verse 10, you have kept my word about patient endurance. This was a community that had faithfully endured in the midst of great suffering, and Jesus honors them for it. And this tells us something utterly important. There is a way to walk through suffering that pleases Jesus. And there is a way that does not. Walking through suffering in a way that pleases Jesus will turn you into something great. And it will keep you from turning into something terrible. That's the first thing I want to look at. That's the big principle. That's the big idea. But getting into the meat of this passage and starting to work in reverse, we have to ask, well, how do we do that? How do we walk faithfully in the midst of suffering? How did they do it? And the answer is found just a few verses earlier in the last part of verse 8. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. Kept my word, not denied my name. And this is really important because whenever we are suffering, there is a tremendous temptation to get sidetracked. What do I mean? Well, I mean we start to feel that pull to stop asking How do I obey Jesus in this? How do I honor him? And we instead start to be consumed with, how do I get out? 
And again, there's nothing wrong with wanting to get out. But when it becomes all-consuming, it begins to change you. It, it, it begins to transform you. It begins to take you down a road that actually could make you terrible. And sometimes we don't just ask, how do, how do I get out? Sometimes we say, how do I get back at that person who is the source of my suffering? Someone's talking smack about you. Someone is making your life miserable. And you stop asking, what does it look like to honor Jesus here? And you, all you start thinking about is the ways that you can bring them down. We get sidetracked. But you know, getting sidetracked is even more of a temptation when you are suffering because of your loyalty to Jesus. You're tempted to give up. You're tempted to give in. You're tempted to drop out. You're saying, this isn't working. I'm going to try something else. And let's be very clear. There is a cost to following Jesus. There is a cost. There's a great cost sometimes. It will bring trouble into your life. The Bible tells you, Jesus tells you to expect it. Don't be surprised. These early Christians in Philadelphia, they were suffering for following Jesus. And yet they continued to keep his word and not deny his name. And so Jesus says, I'm turning you into something great. You know, there's this remarkable statement in the first half of verse 8, continuing to work back. He, he says, I know that you have but little power. I know that you have but little power. It's easy to just slide right past that. But in a sense, Jesus is saying, I know you're puny. I know you're tiny. I know you're people of little social standing. I, I know that you don't have any influencers. You don't have any big shots. You don't have any movers and shakers. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You have kept my word and you have not denied my name. Your faithfulness in suffering is making you into something great. And this is really significant. Greatness in the kingdom of God is not about money. It's not about power. It's not about social cachet. It's not about big influence. It's not about popularity. It is about faithfulness to Jesus. And when we are faithful to Jesus in our suffering, we not only find that he is transforming us into something great, we actually find that he begins to use us in ways that we could not have possibly imagined. And that's the third thing I want to talk about. What does Jesus use our suffering for? And, you know, we, we could spend a whole sermon series talking about this. But there's a couple little things in this text that I want to highlight. Because three times in this passage, Jesus says, behold. Do you know what behold means? It means take a look. Take a long, hard look. See this. Don't let this pass you by. And the first time he says behold is in the beginning of verse 8. He says, behold, I have set before you an open door. Jesus, who has the key of David, has opened a door before them. And we've already mentioned at the beginning how he has flung open the door of salvation. But most commentators recognize that he's using it a little differently here. He's not talking about the door of salvation per se. He's talking about the door of opportunity. The door of service. The door of mission. The door has been opened for the advancement of the gospel. You know, that, that uh, phrase, open door, it is a common phrase that was used in the early church. And we see this throughout the New Testament 
to picture the opportunities placed before the church for the advancement of the gospel. That you could, you could read about this in 1 Corinthians 16.9 or, or 2 Corinthians 2.12 or Colossians 4.3. It's pretty consistent. How do we know Jesus is using it that way here? Well, because of the second and third beholds. If you look at verse 9, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Jesus is saying, through your faithfulness and suffering, I am opening a door for the advancement of my gospel. Now, I know some of you tripping out a little bit because when Jesus says of those in the synagogue in Philly uh, that it's a synagogue of Satan, they say they are Jews and are not, but lie. You're like, whoa, post-Holocaust context now. That sounds very different. He's not making a remark about their ethnicity. Jesus was a Jew. He's talking about their authenticity and spirituality. They claim to be the true Israel of God, but they aren't. And by the way, Jesus, last week we just saw that Jesus spoke to the church at Sardis and said, you claim to be alive, but you're dead. Right? That's, that's what Jesus is doing here. But this is the remarkable thing we cannot miss. It's what Jesus adds at the end. That they will come and bow down and they will learn that I have loved you. Do you, do you know what this is saying? It's saying people you never thought in a million years would listen to you will listen to you because of your faithfulness in suffering. That's how I'm going to use it, not just for your benefit, but for the benefit of others. Through your faithful suffering, I'm opening a door. And this is so crazy because once again, this is language and imagery and symbols that is drawn from the book of Isaiah. Because in Isaiah, we get pictures of God's great promise to be at work in the world. And those pictures are of the Gentiles coming and bowing down, recognizing Israel as God's people. And the God of Israel is the true God. But here we get Jewish citizens in Philadelphia coming and bowing down, recognizing Christians as the true Israel of God through faith in Jesus Christ. As his beloved people. And what Jesus is saying, the door of opportunity is being flung wide open in and through your suffering to do something that no one would have thought possible. Because when you walk through your suffering in faithfulness to Jesus, you honor him and you bear witness to his glory and greatness. You know, I mean, it's it's, it's easy to understand when you think it out. When you see someone who is willing to suffer for the sake of something else or someone else, you know something about the value that that thing or that person has to the individual. It is through the suffering of Christians, faithfully serving their Savior, that doors start opening for the advancement of the gospel. Have you ever considered that in your suffering, Jesus might be opening some doors instead of closing them? Ever thought about that? That's how he rolls. And here's an interesting historical note. The city of Philadelphia was founded in 140 BC as a missionary city. But not for the gospel. It was, it was, it was intended to be a base for Hellenizing the rest of the world. Which means spreading the Greek language and the Greek way of life. 
And one of the reasons why it was established for this purpose is because it was situated on one of the great trade routes in that, in that day that linked Europe and Asia. So it, it was strategically located for this purpose, to Hellenize the world. But Jesus, he's repurposing it. He's repurposing his people in that city. And he's like, you're not going to be a base for Hellenizing the world. You're going to be a base for gospelizing the world. And it is going to be in and through your faithful suffering. You know, we live in Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley is an incredibly influential region in the world. And some of you are pretty gigged up about trying to use all the riches and technologies of Silicon Valley for the advancement of the gospel. And God bless you, that's great. But have you ever thought that one of, about the fact that one of the ways Jesus might use us to gospelize Silicon Valley is through our faithfulness in suffering? That's how it goes down. As the Reverend, uh, right Reverend Russ Whitfield, who our speaker at our retreat, reminded us, the most important question to be asking in our suffering is not, why is this happening to me? But rather, how will my suffering be used to advance the gospel? Some of you might be saying in your hearts right now, I, I, I don't know about this. I don't know if I can hold it together. I, I don't know if I can hold up under the pressure. But Jesus doesn't ask you to be a superhero. And he doesn't ask you to hold back your tears. And he doesn't ask you to stuff down your hurts. He asks you to trust him and to walk in faithfulness before him. And when we do, he has some comforting words for us. Notice verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the world. You know, some, some say this refers to some global crisis at the end of the world. Some say it's just a generic statement about hours of trial that happen over and over and again and again. And others say it's referring to some soon-to-come season in the Roman Empire that will like ratchet it up and intensify the persecution that Christians will receive. And you know what? Actually, it doesn't matter all that much. And you know why? Because what Jesus is saying is, I got you. I got you. I will keep you. He's not saying you're not going to suffer. That doesn't fit with what we see in the rest of Revelation and what God's people experience. It's not, it doesn't fit with what we see in the rest of the Bible. But what he's saying is, I will keep you from spiritual harm. I will enable you to endure. I will sustain you with my power. The forces of evil will not take your crown when you hold fast to me. Verse 11. Suffering is a tool in the hand of Jesus for our sanctification, our transformation, our becoming great by the values of the kingdom. Yet we are sanctified, not just so we can enjoy fellowship with God, but also so that we can be about the mission that Jesus has entrusted to us. And he uses our faithfulness and suffering to advance his gospel. Now, what hope does Jesus hold out to those who walk in faithfulness. You know, this past week I was at a gathering and uh, I was reminded of a story of a very good friend of mine that uh, a few years ago went through a season of suffering that was absolutely atrocious. The kind of thing that none of us would ever want to go through and we wouldn't wish on our worst enemy. And uh, he, this friend of mine told a story about that season. And then he said that as the darkness 
felt like it was all around him and it was suffocating him. That one morning he got up early, got on his bike, and he rode to the shore to see the sunrise. And I'll never forget the words he used to describe why he did that. He said, I needed to see the dawn. I needed to see the dawn. At the end of this passage, Jesus shows us the dawn. The dawn of new creation. Verse 12, to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Very specific words chosen to hook the hearts of Christians in Philadelphia. You see, Philly was a volcanic region. It regularly experienced tremors and earthquakes that shook the town and sent people fleeing the city. And Jesus is saying to these Christians, I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of my God. And you're never going to have to run away or flee again. You're never going to have to run away in fear again. You're going to have a secure place in God's presence forever. And here's another thing. After an earthquake had destroyed the city of Philadelphia in 17 AD, the emperor Tiberius, he remitted the town's taxes and he gave loads of money to help with the rebuild. And the name of the city was changed to Neo Caesarea, the new city of Caesar, which means we belong to the kingdom of Caesar. This is the kingdom that we belong to. Jesus knows their history. And he says, I got some new names for you. I'm going to write on you the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, and my own new name. You will forever be able to say, we belong to the kingdom of God. And this new name of the new city, the new Jerusalem, it's it's noteworthy. Because when John describes this city at the end of the book... This is how he describes it. No more sorrow. No more suffering. No more sin. No more shame. No more death. God will wipe away every tear from every eye forever and ever and ever. We need to see the dawn. Because in seeing the dawn, it enables us to walk with faithfulness through our suffering. You know, several years ago, I was going through a horrible season of suffering. And a former member of this church who had moved away reached out to me. And uh, this is someone that I had walked through hell and back with in his own marital struggles, as well as his own battle with addiction. And during that season of my life, he shared with me some words that his AA sponsor had shared with him. Three words, Jesus wastes nothing. Jesus wastes nothing. Do you believe that? Jesus wastes nothing. Not your cancer, not your loneliness, not your mental health challenges, not your career implosion. He will use it all. But how will he use it? He will use it to sanctify you. He will use it to open doors for the gospel. And he will use it to one day make you a pillar and give you a place and a name that nothing can take away from you. Jesus says, I'm going to make you something great. 
Jesus has the key and he is unlocking doors. By his death and his resurrection from the dead, he's opened the door to a glorious inheritance. And he is opening doors before us for the advancement of the gospel. Even in, especially in, those seasons when we have to learn to walk in faithfulness to him. Those seasons of suffering where we have to live out our loyalty and our love to Jesus. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for your presence and your power and your promises. We thank you that you are worthy, that you are great, that you're glorious. And that you show us the dawn to keep our hopes alive. So Lord, would you send your spirit to be with us? To attend our hearts, to enable us to walk according to your word, to not deny your name. To live with patient endurance in faithfulness to you, even in the midst of our suffering. And Lord, help us be the body of Christ that know how to come alongside one another in those seasons where we feel like we're falling apart. To be the hands and feet of your love and your care for us. To sustain us in those seasons that we might bear witness to your glory and greatness to the world. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.